All right, we have the privilege of continuing this series called Bold Prayers. We began it last week with a message called Increasingly Bold Prayers. Last week, we took a look at the apostles right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, they preached with boldness. They were threatened. By, uh, their lives were threatened. They uh, then gathered with the believing community and they prayed for more boldness. God immediately answered their prayer with an earthquake, as you recall, if you're here. And uh, then they prayed some other prayers, too, that were forthcoming, and we read the book of Acts uh, as the answer to those prayers, asking for God to work with more miracles and more power and, and those kinds of things. So that was praying for increase, with increasingly bold prayers, and they experienced increasing boldness. Now, here's the thing. We don't always experience answers to prayer immediately, like the apostles did in that instance. And as I study scripture, I'm quite clear that prayer is not always immediate. Prayer isn't always answered so quickly. And so today's topic is persistently bold prayers. We have to learn how to pray persistently bold prayers, precisely because in many, many cases, these bold prayers are not answered so very quickly, and we have to persist in our prayers. Now, those of you who grabbed a bulletin on your way in, there's an outline for you tonight. On the back side of that line, there's a study with some scriptures in it that we're not going to get into uh, today together. I hope that you'll get into them because they all go with this theme about persistently bold prayers. I do want to highlight an individual that wrote the book of James. And this individual that wrote the book of James was the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. James, uh, history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but history tells us that James had a nickname. He was Old Camel Knees. Uh, he prayed so much that he got these knobby knees because he took the posture of prayer on his knees so frequently that his knees looked funny. He just had these big old knobby calluses on his knees, and so they called him Old Camel Knees. And so that's an interesting point because at the end of that letter, he talks about his hero in prayer being Elijah, and he uses Elijah as an example for each one of us, and here's what he has to tell us. He says, Elijah was a human just like us. Now, the reason he needs to say this is because so many Jews elevated Elijah to such a degree that they even kind of lost touch with his humanity a little bit and looked at him in almost otherworldly terms. But no, James said, no, 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 no. We can learn to be as powerful and as bold in our praying as Elijah was. And so if old camel knees followed Elijah as the master in prayer to learn how to increase the boldness of his prayer life, um, we think we're on a good track to take a good look at Elijah. And that's precisely what we're going to do together tonight. Now, our focus reads this way. Bold prayers often require tenacious persistence. Now, here's what I know about this focus. That's not a tough concept to hang on to. Bold prayers often require tenacious persistence. So I'm not really after uh, trying to give you something hard for your minds to get a hold of. Now, here's, here's why I can say this. My dog already has this. My dog knows how to do this. All right? So my dog gets my attention in many different ways. My dog, uh, sometimes, if she just wants affection, and she's been a leaner from the time she was a little pup, always just leaning into me, you know, and if she just leaned into me, now she's a lot bigger, she leans into me, and that means affection, and she'll just lean in if I'm kind of uh, 
my, my attention is somewhere else, you know? She'll maybe amp her leaning a little bit more and do the nudge, you know? And then nudges my hand, and, and then she's comfortable, and she's getting the affection she wants, and, and then she's really good. But sometimes it's not affection that she wants, so she goes for a whole new tactic. And this is the one that really is interesting for me. It's like I'll be drinking a cup of coffee on the couch or watching TV, and all of a sudden she gets right in line with my vision, right in front of me. She sits at attention, and then she bores two holes into my eyeballs, staring at my eyes. It's like, what's up? What do you want? And she just stares at me because she knows that eventually I'm going to get the message. She's very persistent. And eventually it's like, okay, it's not this and it's not this. Oh, oh, it's this. And then I take care of her needs. It's like, wow, if my dog gets this persistence thing, I figure we're smart enough. We can get this too. And so we're going to go beyond that, of course, as we study how to be bold in our prayers. But it requires tenacious persistence. We're going to be in a lengthy passage of scripture. I'll be doing really well to get through the two chapters that I've selected that is one whole story that kind of from start to finish, the story of Elijah. It's not the rest of his story, but it's this nugget story that really teaches us about this tenacious and persistent prayer. So before we get into that story, you might want to grab your chair Bible if you didn't bring a Bible. If you brought your Bible, turn to 1 Kings 17. Um, the Point number one, though, is where I want you to start. Let's go ahead and fill in that point. Prayer mastery requires bold persistence. Prayer mastery requires bold persistence. Now, just keep in mind, I told you about, really, James is a master at prayer, old Camelies. I mean, everybody admired his prayer life, and yet he developed that by studying a master praying person who's Elijah, and he quotes uh, from scripture, putting it together in such a way where he sets Elijah forward as a master. And so we're going to take a look at Elijah together. So if you grab that chair Bible, we're going to be in actually page 247. I said we're going to be in chapter 17. That's, that's where it begins. But we're going to start at the end of the story that we're studying tonight because some movies do that. Actually, I... <laughs> If you start at the end, then we'll go back to the beginning. You're going to hit the, get the whole package together. So we're going to start at the end. But before we get there, I want to give you some background. Okay, so this section of history is 850 B.C. So if you can kind of just set that in your mind, this is 850 years before Christ arrives on the scene. This is long after the Jewish nation has been established. That would be about 1500 B.C., the Jewish nation is established, but they've already had enough history by 850 B.C. They've already had enough history that they're on the uh, skids. They're, they're doing really poorly. Their faith has been extremely compromised. They already have two kingdoms, and we're studying the, the most compromised kingdom that is uh, in this section of Scripture where Elijah needs to confront the most wicked king in the history of the kingdom of Israel. And the scripture tells us that. We're going to look at the confrontation between uh, Elijah and King Ahab. How many of you have heard of Queen Jezebel? Okay, Queen Jezebel is Ahab's wife, and she is not an Israelite. She's a pagan. She was a princess and a, a, a beauty and a person of power from somewhere else that Ahab uh, made his wife. And she was the power behind Ahab. 
And she was very wicked, very cruel, and did not care at all for Ahab's gods, God. Ahab actually started to fall into this syncretistic mixture of worship because of his wife. She was into the Baal gods, and she was into Asherah, and she was into the uh, fertility gods of her pagan religion. We're going to find out more about that as we continue. Now, that being the background, we're jumping to the end of the story. We're going to have to kind of piece it together. The reason I'm jumping into the end is because the topic we've chosen. The topic we've chosen is this persistently bold prayer. So at the end of the story, three and a half years after Elijah first confronts Ahab, and we're going to go back to that, he first confronts Ahab and saying, it's no longer going to rain except by the word of my mouth and that he's declaring war on the fertility gods that Jezebel is serving and has caused compromise. And so you think these gods have the power of weather? Mm-mm. It is no longer going to rain, except for by when I say it's going to rain. I serve Yahweh, the Lord God. We come to the end three and a half years later, and here's the end of the story, 1 Kings 18.41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now, I almost hesitate to continue in the story because the, um, we get into one of the features that is, really excites children, excited me too. I love listening to my mom read the Bible stories to me when I was a little kid. And this was one of my favorite stories. And after Elijah Basically, well, let's slow this down a little bit here. Didn't even say Elijah prayed, did it? The word prayer wasn't there. It just said Elijah bowed down, put his head between his knees, and he did this seven times. What's he doing? He's praying for rain. Well, we, we see the, the position of prayer. We see it repeated. Let's just slow this down. He climbs up to the mountain with his servant. This is the climactic ending of a big episode we're going to look at in a moment. Now the rain is going to come as he's predicted. He bows his head down and goes through this earnest prayer. The servant is very um, humbly and quietly either observing, watching, or praying with him. Waits for the prayer to be finished. And then Elijah says, go check to see. The servant runs off to the probably where he can get a glimpse of the Mediterranean because Mount Carmel's right there, and he sees the ocean. He's looking the right direction to see if rain is coming. Man, it's been a brassy sky and iron dirt, and it's been a drought for three and a half years, and he says, goes back down, nothing. All right, so in that moment when there's nothing, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed, earnestly prayed, head between the knees, head on the ground, and just praying in that prayer position, but you can picture this Eastern praying position, and what do you do next? Elijah doesn't skip a beat. He just goes again and prays. Prays and prays and prays earnestly. And the servant just waits patiently, 
waits for the prayer to be finished. Elijah says, go check now. He goes and checks again. He comes back and says, nothing. It's the same. This happens seven times. So in your prayer life, let's say you're going through this, and you're praying and praying and praying, and there's nothing happening. And then you go and pray and pray and pray again, and nothing happening. At what point do you get discouraged and quit? Elijah has had three and a half years of training, and before that, many, many years of seclusion and solitude and prayer. He's the precursor of the uh, John the Baptist type in the wilderness. He, he spent a time with just him and God for so long that he had developed this persistence in prayer. So he just keeps doing it and keeps doing it and keeps doing it. And finally, after the seventh time, the servant says, all right, cool, I see something. And it says he sees a cloud the size of the palm of his hand, which I'm thinking on the horizon, that's pretty small. So here's how I picture it. You can do what you want. I picture him going, uh, uh, there's something, there's something. Let's see. It's about the size of the palm of my hand. <laughs> Goes back, it's about the size of the palm of my hand. And I just says, great, now send word to Ahab, it's time. And he does, and Ahab quickly, because now it's, it's growing, it's getting dark. It's really a stor- storm starting to kick up, and it comes in quickly, and he gets in his chariot, he gets in his his king's best horses in his chariot starts heading down Carmel, and it's getting totally black, and he's just getting drenched. Next thing he knows, if you keep reading, I'll let you read it, as he's riding bumping down the chariot road, on, down the way from Carmel towards where he can get some shelter, he sees this dark figure whoosh, go by him. Elijah? It was. It was old man Elijah. Elijah girded up his loins, it says, takes his robe, ties it around his belt, and he treads on down the hill. See you later, Ahab. This is the culmination of total uh, put him in his place. Tell you, I told you it's going to be this way at my word. All right, so there's the end of the story. We're going to pick up towards the beginning of the story next. But right now, let's just review where we've been. So mastery, prayer mastery requires bold Persistence. Point number two. Bold persistence requires prayer mystery. Think about this for a moment. When the prayer is not immediately answered, if you want to rise to master level, every time you have to persist in prayer, there's a reason behind that that you do not know. Persistence implies, and it's required, that there's mystery. Why do you have to pray again? I mean, we've seen and we've read that God is powerful. He can do a miracle. He can do it just like that. He can create. He can heal. He can do bang, big stuff. Why not now? That's what we often fail to realize when we focus in on prayer. It requires Persistence in so many cases. And persistence means you have to live with the mystery of not knowing why the persistence is required. Okay? Just in case you're not aware of this, Jesus teaches us to persist in prayer. He doesn't explain why. He just says, you need to be more like this widow. And there's a whole story he goes into that I'm not going into tonight. 
Turn your outline over. Tells you where to look in Luke. And there's a whole story tells about be more like the widow. Tells a story with a wicked judge. And if the wicked judge, no, I'll let you read it. We'll go there. We're in a different story. Now. Okay. So, Scripture is filled with all kinds of examples like this where we have to persist. We have to endure mystery, not knowing why the answers aren't coming quickly. Now, I just want to give you one example that's not in the story of Elijah. So on the screen is a, a verse that we might just skip by really quickly. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, you just read this, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Now, when it comes to prayer, God asks us to pray, and he asks us to pray persistently, and that's in scriptures a lot. So it's really interesting as it relates to prayer. Let's define faithful a little bit. Little bit. Faithful doesn't mean eloquent. I mean, how, how great do your words have to be? We, we sometimes think, I can't pray like he, he does. I don't really have the words. Listen, my dog gets my attention using no words, okay? <laughs> we can get God's attention without eloquence. It's not the eloquence, it's the faithful continuing to request, continuing to request, continuing to request. It's not brilliance, it's not giftedness, it's not being spectacular in your prayer, it's being faithful. Faithful implies in keeping with the trust given and persistence over the long haul. So that's just one example of what is required with this trust that we begin where it's a privilege to pray. On the screen is another quote that I want us to just take a look at quickly. It reads, we live in a culture that overvalues 15 minutes of fame. Agree? Overvalues 15 minutes of fame and undervalues lifelong faithfulness. We want answers in the speed of light and God often answers prayers in the speed of a seed. Now, sometimes people, they hear that, they go, oh yeah. But we read about the miracles that are so quick and we forget that. We always want the speed of light answers. We want quick answers. We wonder why. Folks, we don't know why it all the time. To become good at persistently praying bold prayers, you have to live in the mystery of not knowing, but trust and be faithful and continue persistently to pray bold prayers. So plant bold seeds with bold prayers and keep praying persistently. A little bit more on this. When you plant a seed, you water it. So let's just take that image, water the seed that we're planting in prayer, and do we know what's happening when we're watering that seed? No, it's completely hidden to us. We're just praying and praying and praying. So, so when the root starts to sprout, we still don't see we have no clue. We're continuing to pray boldly for the thing to happen, and it's starting to root down, and something is happening. It's below the surface. It's hidden. It's mysterious to us. And then finally, we get a glimmer of it above the surface where we can now see it. We're starting to get excited, and we can pray more boldly, more boldly as we see the life taking place that is being answered in the speed of a seed. And so many of our prayers with regard to your will be done on earth, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So many of those kinds of prayers are at the speed of a seed. And we need to keep praying and praying and praying. And we don't see so often 
but keep praying and praying, and eventually you'll be excited and glad that you did. So, prayer mastery requires bold persistence. Prayer persistence requires prayer mystery. Point number three, pin your persistence on God's promises. Pin your persistence on God's promises. Here's where the power of Elijah's prayers are really remarkable. And he's so bold because he's praying according to God's will, according to God's word. Now, a little bit more about Jezebel. Uh, Looking around, some of the stuff I'm sharing is a little bit too sensitive for children. Um, Pagan worship was pretty pretty gross, it's pretty crass, it's, it was horrible. Uh, so worshiping the Baal gods and the Asher gods was actually so often a s- sexual nature, sexual worship. There were uh, temple prostitutes, both male and female prostitutions, uh, that uh, you come to participate and view in public these acts that supposedly are getting the gods in heaven to come together and create the rain or create the things that you want out of this kind of worship stuff. It was really horrific. In the Baal worship and the worship of Moloch, one of the Baals, um, when there's crisis and it's really, really bad, they would go, they would up their ante and do this stuff that's even worse and worse and worse and, and very frequently would offer human sacrifice of children to these pagan gods. Um, to call favors. So to show how, how desperate they were, they would do this kind of thing before their God. We're gonna see enacted in this conflict between the gods um, some of their pagan practices as we read further. So turn back to page 245 if you're using the chair Bible. We're now gonna start the story at chapter 17. Elisha shows up without any introduction and he just confronts King Ahab. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite. How in the world do you get called a Tishbite? I guess, I guess you're from Tishbe. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. All right, here's the declaration of war. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Whom I serve. Now, if you're looking carefully at the translation you have, um, is the word Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, okay? Um, Some of the modern translations are doing uh, an effort to kind of bring some consistency to the translation of the Lord's personal name, Yahweh. Um, And they're following suit with the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew text that was translated into Greek 250 years before Jesus. They translated Yahweh, kurios, which means Lord. That Lord God was a translation that they used. So the modern translators are following that translation when they're um, translating Yahweh into the term Lord. But they're offsetting it for us to be able to see visually by putting it in all caps, that this is the all cap translation of the word Yahweh. This is the personal name of God, um, who is Israel's God, Uh, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. 
So this is the declaration of war, war against Jezebel's gods, the declaration of war on their fertility gods, and the huge compromise that's taken place in this nation. So the point that we're trying to make here is that Elijah is pinning his persistence and he's declaring war based on God's promises. It's my opinion that he is quite familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 11. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Lord God says, if you disregard the law which I've given you that says, don't follow any of these gods of these lands, don't follow any of their images, don't follow any of their practices, I alone am God, there is only one, the Lord is one and I'm God, um, if you start following these other practices, it will stop raining. It will, you, your land will not prosper. And so I think that Elijah says it's time. The compromise is so huge. Now he's going to call into uh, judgment and pray that it stops raining based on God's will, and it's only gonna start raining again when he says so. That's just my opinion. I base that a little bit on verse two because after he declares this, then we read, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. I suppose there's a couple ways you could look at this. Maybe he's already been hearing from the Lord and he's kind of declaring this statement. But it seems like now that he's declared it, then the Lord says, okay, let me give you the rest of the battle plan. Um, and so we keep reading the rest of the battle plan. Verse three, leave here, turn eastward, and hide. That's the battle plan. Yeah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. You've got to be kidding me. No. God is creator, and he's pretty creative. He doesn't follow the same patterns. In the past, he, he fed his entire nation in the desert with a new substance called manna. And they just kept him alive with manna. Sometimes he'd do a quail miracle or whatever. This time he's going to do something totally different. I guess the creator is creative, okay? And he says, okay, this time I'm going to take the most selfish bird you can think of, a raven, and I'm going to cause the raven to be selfless. The raven will have to go hunt food and bring you food every morning and every evening. I'm going to drop meat for you and drop bread for you. You just hide in this ravine right near this brook. Great. Okay? Elijah, though, is used to desert life. What does he do there? He just hangs out with God and prays. He's just praying and praying and praying. Any guesses as to what he's praying? Well, we don't really have it to tell us, but <laughs> I would guess, Lord, I declared war. Don't let it rain. Bring the drought. That's what your word says. Let's make this happen. Okay, cool. Sounds pretty good until you're in the desert. Now, here's what we read. Sometime later, this is months and months later, the, book, the brook dried up. Oh, crud. He's in the desert. He doesn't have any water. <laughs> now what? And you'd think that would be bad news, but it's not really bad news. This is, this is good news. This is the answer to prayer. My prayers are working. <laughs> the drought has gotten so bad, my brook dried up. Well, we keep reading and it. it's okay because there had been no rain in the land. All right? So God gives Elijah the next set of instructions. I'm going to skip that section. Great section. It's also showing you that God will provide, just obey. God will provide, just obey. And the huge story that comes afterwards is just another example where it seems like, no, 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 I can't do that. Yeah, if you do that, God will provide. And he does. Skipping that story, might want to read that later. Now, jump with me to chapter 18. We're going to be starting at verse 17 because uh, now we're, 
passing three and a half years of Elijah hiding. Meanwhile, Ahab and Jezebel has been sending out armies to kill off uh, priests and, and prophets of Israel. Uh, Obadiah is secretly hiding a bunch of them in a cave to provide food to them to try to keep them alive. Elijah doesn't know this. Elijah's just hiding. Three and a half years famine. Ahab is, is mad. He's trying to make sure Elijah gets found and gets killed because there's total drought on the land. And it's Elijah's fault because Elijah says it's not going to rain until I say so. So they want to kill Elijah. Three and a half years later, Elijah shows up. So here we are. It's showdown time. When he, Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay, let's just do the math here. Elijah is one. 450 and 400 is 850. It's one against 850 plus the king's armies, the king's power. Elijah's all alone here, okay? And we often do number crunching this way. We think, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, I don't have enough. Hold on. (laughs) Obedience in God is enough. (laughs) You and God are a definite majority, all right? And so Elijah just is not fearful. He just proceeds. Now summon the people from all over Israel. Meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. On the screen, I want to bring a quote. But the people said nothing. Just as the worldly culture caused Judaism to misplace their faith, worldly culture today challenges and undermines our faith too, doesn't it? How often do we say nothing when we experience a clash of values? Sometimes we become so used to stuff that bothers God that it doesn't bother us. That is a very dangerous, numbing place to be. They were silent. Numb is dumb. Okay? Now, we in our English language use dumb in two ways. Dumb is in stupid, and dumb is in silent. Deaf and dumb as in silent, okay? Numb is dumb, but we go silent in our culture-clashed world. We really do. And why do we go silent in our culture-clashed world? Because we're numb. We don't see it the way God sees it. In fact, we've exposed ourselves so frequently to the fumes of darkness and the scenes of darkness that we're used to it. We're numb to it. It doesn't bother us anymore. This should bother us. And when we're silent as if, oh, whatever, it should bother us. How long will we waver between two opinions? If God is God, follow God. 
but you're allowing yourself to sniff in the atmosphere of darkness and take in the gateway through the eyes, the dark filth, because you think it doesn't bother you. It's no big deal. You're going completely numb, and you're going dumb. And when you're confronted by the prophet with the clarity of God's truth, there's nothing to say. Skip with me now to verse 22. 1 Kings 18, 22. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the holy one of the Lord. I'm the only one. I thought that didn't sound right. I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare another bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl, given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Just look at how bold this is. <laughs> Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. Now, you're going to be glad you came to the evening service because I didn't say this in any of the other services. Or busy. <laughs> Some of the translators say what he's saying is maybe he went someplace to relieve himself privately. Get his attention. <laughs> ah, I didn't see that coming. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. It's like maybe his hearing aid battery ran out. Maybe he took too much Tylenol PM. Maybe he, I mean, there's just, he just on and on, he just heaps the insults as they're just going on and on trying to get the attention of their God. Now, here's something really important about this. Let me teach you the nature of faith. Faith is always based on its object. That's not how the world teaches us, but faith is based on the object, the object of faith. All the faith in the world does, doesn't amount to anything if it is misplaced. Faith is only as powerful as the object you place your faith in. Okay? Um, there's lots of examples of this. Let me just put it this way. Um, a lot of the arguments are whether we believe in God or believe in science. No, I just believe in truth. Uh, yes, there's a lot of science I believe in. I place my faith in the, whereas where science is true, there's a lot to put your faith in the truth if the object of it's true, okay? If God is true, there's a lot of truth in that. And I see history, I see revelation, I see truth, I base my faith in the object. If it's not truth, it all falls apart. Our world teaches it as if it doesn't matter what the object is, whatever you believe, as long as you're sincere. That's what our world teaches, and I'm just saying that's bogus. That's totally bogus. It's not how sincere you are that makes a faith valuable. It's whether you've placed your faith in what is true or not. If it's false, it's going to fall apart. If it's true, you're putting your faith in the right thing, okay? Now, in our world, 
particularly in the recovery movement, what's becoming really uh, helpful to the recovery movement is that somebody needs to place their faith in something beyond themselves, and that's helpful, so they point people to the higher power. Choose whatever higher power you want, they say, but I'm saying, no, 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 let's choose the true higher power. In fact, let's choose the highest power instead of just a higher power. The Baal gods and the Asher god had a connective power, but they weren't the highest power. These are demonic gods. There's demonic worship involved. And so the reason they even are worshiping is that it works sometimes. They were caught with the power of it, working sometimes, because demons are really willing to animate, make life happen, make it come to a powerful situation, pull you off track from the true God, the highest God, okay? So be careful where you place your faith. Now, as we keep reading, please notice, sincerity is not, I mean, it's important, but if it's misplaced, you can be sincerely wrong. And we're gonna see that played out as we keep reading. So they shouted louder and began slashing themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. So if their gods weren't listening, they began cutting themselves, self-mutilation, and blood was starting to flow, and they'd sprinkle their blood. Pretty soon, they're a bloody, naked mess all around the altar, sprinkling blood everywhere in, in a frenzy to try to get their God's attention. We're sincere. We're really sincere. See how sacrificial we are. And it's just ugly. And I think part of the ugly contrast is part of what Elijah is, bring, is letting people see, and it's raw ugliness, the ugly, misplaced, Demonic worship. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. They've been doing this from morning through noon, through the taunts, through the afternoon, into the evening. The sun is setting, and Elijah said, okay, okay, my turn. You've had your chance. And now we're getting to Elijah's turn. Skip to verse 32. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around the large, in, it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. The trench is not normal. Building a, a stone altar before the Lord is normal. Putting the um, animal on a stone altar was normal. This next part was not normal. Built a trench. Fill four large jars. Now, don't picture jars, picture barrels four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Now contrast Elijah's prayer with their frenzied all day, horrific worship. Here's Elijah's prayer of dignity. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, He's pinning it on history and the reality of their history and something they know. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then... <laughs> The sky had no hint, no clue. Remember, he went up later after this event to pray for rain, 
There is no cloud in the sky, but here's what we read. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. There's nothing but a black hole. (laughs) When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This was an incredible nation-turning event that gave them some more time before their nation's demise. On the screen, the Lord, he is God. How long will you waver between opinions? How long will you remain silent without praying? Why not pray persistently bold prayers in our culture-clashed battle for the lives of people who are not yet convinced the Lord, he is God. This is gonna take praying the bold prayers at the speed of a seed. We might see some amazing, instantaneous, miraculous transformations, but it's gonna take bold, persistent prayers at the speed of a seed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my marriage, in my children's lives, in my neighbor's life, in my employer's life, in my employee's life. Lord, make a difference. Or maybe today, Lord, Lord, you are God. Save me. I repent. I've been sniffing in the darkness. I've been taking in the blackness. I am numb. I repent. Save me. Would you pray? Father, we thank you for this bold confrontation in a cultural clash and compromise. We pray that we would see that we are in such a battle ourselves, a battle for our hearts, and a battle for the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, all around us. We pray that you'd help us to pray persistently bold prayers and pin them to the truths of Scripture, even as Elijah did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.